So the topic of the talk tonight, how many people have been here for the last two weeks? Oh, okay. And how many people have been here for one of the last two weeks? Okay. And how many people are coming for the first time this month? This time, or today? Okay, so we've got about a third and a third and a third, more or less. Okay, so brief review, so those of you that are coming for the first time know what you're walking into. Um, this is a series on mindfulness. And we worked first with the four, we're working with the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of body was the first Thursday of the month. Mindfulness of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, we worked with last week. And this week the topic is mindfulness of mind and mental objects, or mental states, sorry, mental states. And next week will be the contextualized experience, mindfulness of the context of things, mindfulness of the Dhamma. Does anybody have any um, questions? Just in the past two weeks, I gave little like reflections and you were maybe working with mindfulness. Does anybody have anything um, that came up for you during the, about working with feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Did anybody notice any pleasant feelings, any unpleasant feelings this week? Did you notice them? Often we just have them and don't actually recognize this is a pleasant feeling. Or we have an unpleasant feeling and we don't quite notice this is an unpleasant feeling. Things shift when we really recognize that it is a feeling rather than just react to it. Were there any questions from the, 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 the anything from the last two weeks yet? No? Okay, I'll launch right in then. Mindfulness of the mind, chitta, is the Pali word. This foundation of mindfulness really asks us for a contemplation of mind so that we become very sensitive, not just to the objects that we perceive, but we're sensitive to the mental states and to know mental states as mental states so that we're mindful of the mind in the mind. So I'd like you to just tune in right now to your mental state. What is the quality of your mind right now? If you had to give it a name, a word, or a few words to describe the texture of the mind, the quality of the mind, what mental states were present. Is there tranquility? Is there agitation? Is there interest? Is there boredom? Is there desire? Is there aversion? Is there confusion? Is there fear? Is there anger? Is there rage? Is there trepidation? What is coloring your experience? Sometimes we move through many different... Oh, Anna. It's a good question. It's a good question. In, um, in these foundation of mindfulness, the term feeling refers to Vedana, which is the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, and the neutrality of experience. 
It's more like a feeling tone. In English, we say feeling and we mean emotion, but emotion in this system falls more into the category of the third foundation of mindfulness, being aware of the, of the feeling of sadness, or the feeling of, see, I use the word again, but being aware of the um, mental state of sadness, being aware of sadness in the mind. And then, and then if we wanted to explore the, the, the Vedana, the feeling of sadness, we would look to see which aspects of sadness were pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it kind of, this system breaks it down into these little chunks, these, these pieces. In actuality, when we have an experience of an emotion, there will be a feeling tone, there is a mental state present, and there is an object that we are aware of. So maybe there's a trigger for the feeling, so there'll be an external, maybe there's a sensation in the body. Um, so there can be a, a physical experience. These foundations of mindfulness don't unnecessarily occur as divided separate things. But they, they give us a, a different um, way of looking at experience, a different aspect to observe. So the, the, the emotions, Part of the problem is, is we don't have a good English word for pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Feelings isn't really quite the right word because it implies so many emotions. And yet when we experience uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, we're going to be wor we work with the very similar factors. It, with feeling states, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, we need to observe that pleasantness or else the mind will move into desire. Desire is a mental state. That's third foundation. We need to observe unpleasantness or the mind will move into aversion. Aversion, anger, is a mental state, which is third foundation. So it's, you don't have to make huge distinctions in your practice between them, but it's helpful sometimes to know the mental state of desiring of craving, of wanting, of aversion, of confusion, and of emotions, and also whether that's pleasant or unpleasant. Some, some of these qualities are pleasant, they have an alluring feature, and some have an unpleasant quality to them. It's both. It includes thoughts, fantasy, memory, any kind of thought formation that arises. But it also includes emotions. And it, it includes most interestingly and probably the most important aspect of this foundation of mindfulness is that it's how our mind is colored by emotions. Okay, I think I'm going to explore a lot of this in the next, say, 10 or 15 minutes. So if, um, let, me, let me continue on and, and then bring in your questions again, and we'll work with whatever hasn't been addressed. Because um, otherwise I would go off a little too far, maybe, on a, on a very specific example. 
the, um, the interesting thing, though, about this foundation of mindfulness, first, it's really important, as Anna asked, to clarify the difference in, in the term feeling so that we know we're working with emotions here when we're working with mental states. But one of the aspects of this foundation is to experience how the mind is colored by emotions or colored by mental states or colored by reactive tendencies. And it's that observation that really helps us free the mind from these tendencies and reactions. And the three that we generally observe is how is the mind affected or colored by greed, by hatred, or by delusion. The terms in Pali are raga, for greed, lust, desire, craving. Um, Dosa, which is translated as anger, ill will, aversion, or hatred. And moha, which is delusion, ignorance, confusion, and bewilderment. These are the influences that we observe. How do these forces of greed, hate, and delusion affect the mind? When is the mind affected by them? And when is the mind free of them? Let me read uh, the, the section from the Satipatthana Sutta that deals with this foundation. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected as lust, by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion, as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind, and distracted mind as distracted mind. He understands the exalted mind as exalted mind, and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind, and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind, and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind, and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. Again, we have this verse that's very simple and straightforward. We understand what is present and what is absent, what is present in our mind and what is not. The commentary um, specifically categorizes all different mental states and into these different components of consciousness. So we need to really look closely at what is the greedy mind and what does it feel like? Can you recognize greed when it arises in the mind? Do you also recognize non-greed when it arises? They're treated very equally. Recognize hatred when it arises. Well, that has a certain sting to it. Well, what about non-hatred? Recognize that too. And the same with confusion and non-confusion. Maybe the greed, hate, and delusion we are a little bit more obvious because we've worked with them the last few weeks. But there's these other aspects that the sutta went on to describe. The cramped consciousness and the scattered consciousness. This refers to a, um, how the mind is affected by the hindrances of sloth and torpor. 
whether it's scattered and diffused and distracted or whether it's kind of sluggish and tight and dull and, and contracted. There's also the expanded or great mind, different translations, and the unexpanded or narrow consciousness. This level plus the next two, the surpassed and unsurpassed and the concentrated and the unconcentrated, all refer to different levels of concentration in the mind and how the mind responds and feels when it is concentrated and how it is concentrated. And then the last level would be the liberated mind and the unliberated mind. And I quite enjoy this one as well because sometimes um, we think that we just get liberated. But the suttas also describe somebody, there's a, a step after the mind is liberated and then there's this and he knows that it is liberated. And I find that addition to be a very interesting one to contemplate. Now, um, we might be able to be mindful of the liberated consciousness in a moment when we're free of greed, hate, and delusion and confusion. But perhaps that's something that we um, may experience as a culmination of our practice. The essence of all of this observation of mind is to know when and how the mind is affected by defilements and when it is not so that we know a pure mind and we know an impure mind. We know the qualities and the textures of the various things that can manifest through concentration, which is a process of purifying the mind. And we also recognize when there's some problem so that we can uh, abandon, renounce, explore whatever needs to explore. There's a simplicity in the way that this is described so that we just know the mind in the mind with an attention that's balanced and open. We don't indulge in these mental states. We don't wallow in them. We don't necessarily deny them or reject them. But we simply know that this is arising and that this is not. Very often we repeat patterns because we haven't actually been mindful of that occurrence in our mind. So maybe there's a pattern of aversion that keeps happening in our, in our minds, but we're not quite mindful of it. And so we just keep replaying it and replaying it and replaying it. Sometimes just being mindful of the moments that there is aversion just lets us rest in an awareness of that experience without it perpetuating. It'll then continue with whatever force it originally had, but we won't be sustaining it through that indulgence. We'll also then be aware of those moments that are, were not aversive. Sometimes if there's a lot of aversion arising, we say, I am aversive, or I am an angry type of person, or I am always angry, or I've been angry all day. And that never really happens, because there are moments when anger arises, and there are moments when the mind is free from anger. And by observing both sides of this coin, we start to experience much more balance and feel the, the malleability and the pliability of our own minds. Our minds are never just one thing. Emotions change very, very quickly. Actually, um, Um, 
in the sutta study course, as I was preparing for it in the chapter, there was one, there was two, two, two suttas actually that referred to the talk I was going to give tonight. And um, this first one is where the Buddha said about the, the, how rapidly mental states and mind and thoughts change. Because so often we don't notice how they change. And he said, no other thing do I know, O monks, that changes so quickly as the mind. It is not easy to give a simile for how quickly the mind changes. It's worth remembering sometimes just how quickly our minds change because we tend to identify with some little pattern, some little thought, some little tendency, and then we extend that through an identification with it. Sometimes we'll be identified with it and it won't even be there. You know, if we actually even just in that moment look and say, oh, actually, I'm not angry right now. I was interested in or feeling like somebody was listening to me, or whatever, the, the moods change. Nothing changes as fast as our minds. By observing the rise and fall and the change of our mental states, we also can come to balance in the sense that these are just mental states. We don't have to defend our right to have them. We don't have to protect them. They simply are mental states that arise and pass due to conditions. The meditation practice doesn't eliminate feeling in any way. It doesn't eliminate emotions, and it doesn't eliminate the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It brings mindfulness to these experiences so that we experience them with a mind that is not not attached and balanced. We then look into each mental state and consider, what is this? What does it arise from? And what is it leading to? Is it conditioned by greed, hate, and delusion? And is it further conditioning greed, hate, and delusion? Is it leading to happiness or is it leading to suffering? When we see the way that our mental experiences arise and pass due to these changing conditions, are, are, are affected by things we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, so they relate to the first foundation of mindfulness of body, and also how we um, feel, how the, 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 the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral will affect our thoughts about them. We start to see that these thoughts arise due to complex conditions. And we don't have to take them quite so personally. They're not ourselves. And yet it's emotions that we identify with so closely. I am sad. I am grieving. I am excited. I am proud. I am this. I am that. Actually, those experiences are just arising due to a cluster of conditions, and a moment later, as the conditions change, those, those emotions will change too. We're only hooked by the identification. There is no problem with any mental state that arises. We make them into a problem by how we grasp them. So how do we work with strong emotions? Because we've all had strong emotions. In the um, um, 
Mudita class I've been teaching on Tuesdays here, Tuesday mornings. Um, we've been working with um, fairly strong emotions of, of joy and rejoicing on the positive end of the scale, um, but also on the more challenging end of the scale of envy, of jealousy, of boredom, of judgment, of aversion, of these things that um, Mudita works with its opposites. So you, when you practice joy, you see all the moments that are not imbued with joy. When you rejoice in somebody else's success, it tends to um, highlight qualities like, or, or emotions like envy or jealousy. So the practice is quite challenging because students really have to be honest in looking at the mind and working with not just the joy, but the shadow side, the shadow side. And, and we're asked to do this not only in the Brahma-Vihara practice where we're cultivating certain qualities like joy, but we're asked to do this in the mindfulness practice so that we're really aware of the emotions that are arising. And when a strong emotion arises, say envy, we ground our experience of that envy, not in an identification with I am an envious, horrible person, not layering judgment and clinging to it, but we simply ground that experience in a mindful awareness of that mental state and how it manifests in the body and how it appears in the present moment. Many emotions we'll feel in the body. We'll feel some contraction, we'll feel some flutter, we'll feel some heat, and we can keep ourselves mindful and present just by staying steady with those feelings. Many, many times we'll need to drop out of the story and into the present experience because that's the challenge of this foundation of mindfulness is that we're dealing with the mind, we're dealing with thoughts, and we tend to think about them. And thinking about them doesn't so much help. How can we bring mindfulness to this quick phenomena? So quick the Buddha couldn't even come up with the simile. And he was good at coming up with similes. I mean, they're, they're, the, the suttas are riddled with similes. He couldn't come up with one. It was nothing that moves to the fast as the mind. When our attention is clear and we're able to just observe this arising and passing of experience without identification, then we know the nature of emotions. We'll know what joy is. We'll know what sadness is. We'll know what equanimity is, what appreciation is, what love is. This is the stuff of our mental life. The, the essential challenge is to experience the emotion without the identification. To actually recognize an emotion arising or a thought arising in this foundation of mindfulness. We work with both the emotions, the mental states, and the thoughts arising without the identification. Now, I was speaking about this process of identifying with thoughts um, some months ago, and a student asked me, um, he said, well, if you don't identify with thought, what's left? And I... Um, enjoyed this question very much because um, what a lovely thing actually to um, be left with nothing. <laughs> to not identify with thoughts and what's left. Now it's the kind of question that I think we can actually ask ourselves. We can experience some thought arising 
and we can experience the way that we're clinging it, the way that we've just created a, 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 a bond to it. We can almost, I feel it like, like I'm, there's a, a stickiness in the mind, that adherence. And we can release that adherence and then wonder, well, what's left when I don't identify with this thought? One teacher used to ask me, um, when as, as in, in the process of dropping out of thought and being, uh, being present, um, without then picking up another thing to identify with. Long, you know, recognize a thought, recognize the clinging to it, and drop it. But not necessarily then grab something else. Not necessarily then grab the breath or grab the body. It's helpful to ground ourselves in the body, but, we, but not necessarily with that same kind of, 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 of clinging. And she used to ask me... Um, who would you be without this thought? What would you be now without this story? And it's an excellent practice of catching the story, the thought, the mental formations, and dropping out of them with the total curiosity of who would I be without identification with this thought? I know I'm not that. So then what? And let the mind rest in that exploration. We feel the pain of the grasping. We feel the energy of it. It's tiring. It's wearisome to identify with one emotion after another and one thought after another and one memory after another and one plan after another and there's so many. You just drop them and in a a moment just see, well, what's there? What's that? Who am I? This process can be helpful because sometimes when we begin a mindfulness practice, we get the initial instruction to um, feel the sensations of the breath. And when thoughts arise, we let them go and come back to the breath. How many people heard an instruction like that? Yeah, okay. It's fairly standard in the beginning of meditation. And it's fairly helpful, and I give that instruction all the time. Well then, if you always do that and you just let go of thought, how will you ever be mindful of mind as mind? It's very helpful to learn to let go of thought so that we can cultivate a deep presence. And if we're thinking about things, we're going to be lost. We're not present. But as the mindfulness develops, then we bring mindfulness directly to thought. We actually turn our awareness and shine it right on, like a light, right on thought itself. Mindfulness actually doesn't have any preference of objects. Mindfulness doesn't prefer the sensations of the body over a mental formation. Mindfulness doesn't prefer the breath. Mindfulness doesn't prefer the nostrils over the abdomen. Mindfulness doesn't have preferences. When we practice when we practice a a broad approach to mindfulness, whatever arises, we will be mindful of. A thought arises and the attention goes to that thought and experiences it with clarity. This is the thought arising, experiencing the beginning of the thought, the duration of the thought, the way that the thought affects consciousness and the dissolution and disappearance of the thought. And it happens faster than that. 
So this foundation of mindfulness is not letting go of thoughts and coming back to the physical presence, although that's very helpful to do. This foundation describes the practice when we turn the attention to the mind itself, to the thoughts, the memories, the stories, the plans, to the mental states, which are the emotions and the, uh, the um, hindrances um, and desire and aversion and delusion, and to the experience of knowing itself. We see how the mind works. We explore the mind. As we're exploring the mind, we will inevitably experience it changing. Right? Thoughts change. Anybody still having the same thought they had at breakfast? No, gone. Impermanent. Ah, there could be an insight in this. Is that, um, if you identify with a thought and you experience it changing, chances are it's going to cause a little suffering. There'll be an unsatisfactory quality. I feel the unsatisfactoriness of thoughts very much because it feels quite alienated to be identified with thoughts, to be seeking happiness through a mental, mentally fabricated world. There's something um, alienated and separated in that. It's an experience of dukkha. There's an insight in that. The, the, the insight into the unsatisfactory nature of thought. And when we explore that question of the identification with thoughts and we wonder, well, who am I without this thought? Am I this thought? There's another insight there into the empty nature of thought, the selfless nature of thought. So we can use this foundation of mindfulness to explore the mind very deeply and to, to experience these liberating insights. The essence is to notice what's present and to notice what's absent. When we notice what... I want to emphasize a little bit of noticing what's absent just because... Um, there's a tendency in our culture to focus on the negative. I very rarely have people desperate for an interview because they're experiencing an absence of greed, hate, and delusion. Most of the time people come to interviews preoccupied with judging and desire and wanting and not wanting and aversion and all of these things because so often we focus on the negative things that are present and we're not always aware of their absence. And so we miss all the moments in the day that were not affected by those defilements. When we notice the absence of these defilements, we're noticing the mind in its pure state. And this is an essential um, uh, skill for the development of deep states of concentration. Um, I, I don't want to get too far off into concentration, but I've been speaking about it recently, so I know some of you were here. I'll just mention a little bit that when you shift from a, a, a level of concentration, um, which is quite strong, but, not, but, 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 very, but very ordinary in the sense of being grounded in the senses, um, to a depth of concentration that in this tradition is called jhana, which are deeply absorbed states of concentration where consciousness radically shifts. The primary shift is the recognition of the absence of certain mental states. 
the absence of hindrances, the absence of defilement. And it's the recognition of the absence of those mental states that gives rise to joy and delight and what's called as the happiness born of seclusion, which is the description of the first jhana. Happiness born of seclusion is the experience that arises in the recognition of the absence of mental states. So experiencing them and, and working with this foundation of mindfulness, being having some facility with mental states, not just over, not just uh, the the hindrances, but also the um, the the absence of the hindrances, is a skill that we need to deepen concentration in those in those classic formulas. One of the other suttas I'd like to share with you um, from the, the number discourses. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is no mental development. In this context, mental development refers to the deepening of concentration. This mind, O monks, is luminous, and it is freed from adventitious defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is mental development. I've been contemplating this line. um, This mind is luminous, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. This mind is luminous, but it is freed from adventitious defilements. This is an invitation to be mindful of the mind. What states is it affected by and what states is it unaffected by? How do we know the mind? like to do just a little guided meditation for a few minutes and then have some discussion. As you settle into the silence, just tune in to the mind, very simply. What would be the mental states that are predominant right now? Turn your attention to be mindful of mind. And say the word quietly to yourself, silently to yourself, so that you know just what is happening. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's this.
And then settle the attention on the experience of breathing. I like to check in with the mood kind of of the mind at the very beginning of the meditation very intentionally. Then settle into the breath. And as you let the attention rest in the changing experience of breathing, I'd like you to take note of the thoughts. Where does the mind go? Sometimes our thoughts seem to drift into past and future content. But sometimes our thoughts are just about the present moment. Sometimes our thoughts are just about the breath. Identifying it, analyzing it, comparing it to the last breath. Those are all thoughts. Is there any craving in the mind? Raga, lust, desire, wanting. Feel the quality of its presence or its absence. Know the quality of the mind that is either affected or unaffected by Raga.
Is there any aversion present? Any ill will, anger, hatred? This is dosa. Recognize if it is present, but equally recognize the quality of mind in which it is absent. Is there any delusion present, any confusion, bewilderment, ignorance? This is moha. If it's present, know its quality, its texture. Be mindful of it. And if it's absent, be mindful of its absence. As you look into the mind, what do you notice? What is the experience of your own mind just now? Are there any comments, questions, discussion?
What you're describing is very natural because, um, and it is the reason why everyone in this room pretty much has heard the instruction, let go of thoughts and come back to the breath. (laughs) Because for a very long time in practice, this foundation of mindfulness is too slippery to work with for for more than just a moment at a time. Um, um, So we have to use the strength of the physical formations, the breath, body sensations, to ground ourselves, to stay steady, and then we just experience the mind momentarily and then come back, momentarily and come back, momentarily and come back. Um, it's a slippery foundation of mindfulness. It requires a precondition of steadiness. So if you try to work with it, integrate it into your work with mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the feeling so that you're not just going to sit down and experience the mind and what most people will do is just start thinking. Um, So um, it's just part of the nature of it. But I wanted to emphasize it in this session because it's the topic um, for this class, but also because very often we hear the beginning instructions and we think that that's where it ends. But actually... We may spend a very, I mean, we may, we'll work with those, with, the, with mindfulness of the body throughout the entire course of our practice. That, it's not that mindfulness of the body is a beginning instruction. And yet what we do is we start to add components to it. And one of the components is a clarity of the effect of the mind on experience. Yes, please. Uh, I, th- I think that's particularly true for strong emotions in terms of a link between the mind and the body and in terms of being aware of if you're angry a lot of times there'll be like adrenal responses going on and you can feel the physiological keys that that's going on in your body and then you can observe how that affects your mind and your experience and there's several other things even diet if you've eaten poorly yeah. You can notice how your body feels different and how that affects your mind. How it affects mind, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even on positive emotions, if you've exercised all really well or whatever, you can notice how you feel better and you have a more positive outlook. Yeah. And a more joyous yeah. experience. And all of these observations that include the interaction of mind and body are not only essential for mindfulness and freeing ourselves from suffering, it's just essential for healthy, normal living. If we don't see how the mind affects the body or how the body affects the mind, we will simply have more opportunities for suffering. Please, in the back. And actually, when you, as you speak, would you say your name so that I know? Yes, I'm Richard. Hi, Richard. I would find it helpful if you could clarify your usage of the word feeling and emotion and then what are these See, part of the problem is is that I can clarify the um, 
the classic use of feeling. However, I wasn't consistent in my speaking. I yeah, I know I slid into the conventional use of feelings as emotions. So um, it's a very difficult habit to break because um, I can't go out into the world and just say, did you experience the pleasantness of that feeling? <laughs> or uh, whatever, or, uh, or, or that's a mental state, that's not a feeling. You're not feeling sad, you're experiencing, you're ex the mental state of sadness arose. So uh, it, it's convention. Um, uh, you kind of, ha I hope you can understand it through the context. Um, but the classic, just to clarify from the, the classic way that these terms are translated into English is chitta refers to mind and in this foundation thoughts and mental states. So the Pali term is chitta and we're using mind to use that to, to refer to that so word. Chitta refers to all three, mind, thoughts and mental states. Chitta actually can be can refer to many things and in this context that's what it that's what it refers to. Yeah, yeah. Some people will, will translate chitta as heart too. Um, it's one of those terms that are little, that you really have to look at the context rather than the term because we struggle to find the right English word. Um, the the but the foundation of the foundation the third foundation refers to chitta, and the second foundation, which is of um, the feeling tone of things, is vedana, and that's the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality of experience. So that's a kind of a feeling tone. So that is that is that the, the confusion enters right there because uh, is, what was the Pali word? Was Vedana. Vedana. Pleasantness, the neutrality, or the unpleasantness is the Vedana, and that's the second foundation. And in English, we use feeling to refer to both. We say we're feeling unpleasant, and we're feeling something unpleasant, and we're feeling sad. And so, we, in English, we use the same feeling word. But you want to make a distinction between the feeling. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Please. Do we have to grasp and identify in order to experience these sensations as impermanent mind? And secondly, who is it that tells us what we experience or what is it that we might experience? Gosh, and it's, um, yeah, I look at the clock, there's like 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> um, the first one, do we have to identify? In order to experience it while we're the impermanent mind. Yeah, actually, let's just look at that one. Let's just contemplate that one for a moment. Do we have to identify with our thoughts to know a thought? Do we have to identify with an emotion to experience an emotion? Do you have to identify with a sensation to know that there's an, a sensation? What's the difference between... Hmm? Clarify what you mean by identify. Yeah. What's the difference between experiencing a sensation in the present moment 
and to be very clear that um, tingling is happening or sadness is happening or something is happening. And the experience of identifying with it, it's the difference between sadness is occurring and I am sad. Tingling is occurring and my knee hurts. Um, there's a difference in the experience. They're different. They're actually, you can be mindful of these different processes. Judith, did you have something? Well, I was going to say that maybe when you feel possessive of what it is, that's, those are my feelings. Okay. The good word, possessiveness. Identification and possession. It's this addition to experience of of, of Identifying with it is creating a sense of self and being through having the experience. And then possessiveness is the having the experience part of it. They occur very much together. But those processes of identification and possessiveness are later stages. The simple answer... So could you say that it's a personification? It's like you notice... uh, state of being of sadness and now personifying it I am sad yes and we create ourselves through that experience we do a lot more with that experience than the mindful experience of a changing experience we become something through it we create a concept and we identify with that concept so the sadness then gets propagated yeah. the, the, whatever it is you're, you're notice, noticing yeah when you Propagate, proliferate, yeah. So yeah. would it be like you get when you identify your pain and then you're mm-hmm. not just witnessing? Very well said. Yes. Very well said, yes. Yes. Simply knowing it mindfully involves no identification. Now that is the kind of question that I love and I ask it all the time. Whenever I'm experiencing a strong um, adherence, to, uh, strong clinging, I, I, I can ask that question to myself. Who's knowing this? What knows this? Who's having this experience? If I'm taking this experience to be mine, who's having this experience? Who am I? So, um, I'd suggest enjoying the question and actually posing it periodically to yourself. It's a way of taking the attention off the fixation off the object and looking at the process of perception. And it turns, shines the light back. Now, you don't want to then start thinking about it and analyzing it and coming up with the whole kind of um, complex system. It's just it, the value of that kind of question is, is it unfixes the mind and you don't want to then fix it someplace else. But that question asks us to look at experience backwards. And it's very nice to have questions that asks us to look at experience backwards. Okay, last question and then we'll, we'll close. I, the, the one who's first question made me think of something that I wanted. I, it may be truly a fitting, so I'll briefly share it. I just want maybe you could link it with do I have to, well, your first question was, do I have to identify? I, years ago, I used to rock climb at a you know, difficult level, and I dealt with fear a lot. And sometimes I would succumb to fear, and I would fail. 
he would fall or he would make a move, I would complete the crime. But I found that when I I would feel fear, I could smell fear, I could actually put, I, could, I could sense fear in many ways, and sometimes I would I would consciously acknowledge the fear, mm-hmm. and then I would I would basically say, okay, I hear you fear, and I would put it aside. And I would, be, I would focus so incredibly fine, I would forget about my fear, and I would just do the climb, and I and I move a foot or six feet or ten feet, and you know the endorphins that were released in my brain were you know rather delightful. But is that kind of what she, what you're saying is? Is, is it, it's like yeah. sometimes I would just I would, I would the fear would just yeah. wash over me, and it would just be like dying a white t-shirt blue, and like the yeah. t-shirt is now yeah. blue. Yeah. And other times I'd see the dye packet opening and I was I just put it in my mind I could stop it. Yeah. It's actually a really nice example because very often it's, it's, the emotions are not a problem in itself. It's the Fear can wash through. It's when we identify with them, then we're lost. Yeah, yeah, and otherwise, the feeling can just come because of the conditions. And then it's not a problem. Is it's actually a really good example. If it washed over me, I could literally feel the strength in my arm yeah. go away. Yeah, and it's still arise. it still can arise. It's not that we never have fear. It's that we're not identified with the fear. So we're not fixed to it. We're not becoming the one who is afraid. And then that's, that's what um, stops us. That's what... Um, so, I'm, so that sense that I have, that this is what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a very good example. Yeah. Well, I hope to see you all next week. We'll work with the last foundation of mindfulness next week, which is mind... Um, in, in, in its context. Um, it's a very fascinating foundation, mindfulness of dhammas. Thank you. <laughs>